All right, welcome to lecture seven of CS121. My name is David Malin. I actually teach CS50, but I'm filling in for Harry today. And what's kind of funny is about half of you are CS50 TFs. Uh, so without further ado, a couple questions. So you've spent the past several weeks in this course talking about some basic fundamentals and strings and languages. So let's get some of these fundamentals out of the way as recap. Uh, softball question, what is an alphabet? OK, so it's a set of symbols, A, B, C, zeros, ones, and so forth. All right, so that's an alphabet. What's a string? Good, so it's a concatenation of zero or more of these symbols. And finally, a language. OK, so it's a set of strings. OK, recently you've been focusing on regular languages. What's a regular language? Someone else. Come on, these really are the softball questions, right? Yeah. Okay, good. So it's a language that can be recognized by a, a finite automaton, an NFA or a DFA. What's an equivalent formulation of that definition? How else might you define a regular language? Yeah. Okay, good. So it's um, or a regular expression for a given regular language. So you can either define a regular language in terms of a regular expression, you can define it in terms of a DFA, an NFA, or you could just give in set notation all of the strings in that language. And that would certainly represent it as well. So today's lecture is ultimately about the sizes of these languages, and in general, the sizes of sets. How many regular languages are there, would you say? You've seen a few so far. So how many total are there? Oh, as many as you want. So that's true. So there's infinitely many regular languages. But let's try to formalize this. It, why is that exactly? I mean, convince me that there are, in fact, infinitely many, even though thus far you guys have presumably only seen finitely many. And you've only had finitely many lectures, finitely many problem sets. So why this claim that there's infinitely many? Justify that, just in casual terms. Come now. Several of you thought there were infinitely many regular languages. You must have some intuition. Doesn't have to involve notation or anything. Yeah? You can always add a new letter to your alphabet and create twice as many strings with it. With OK, good. So one, uh, one sort of view of this problem is if you want to have yet another regular language, add some other symbol like z prime to your alphabet. And then you now have the ability to concatenate z prime onto any of the strings that were previously in that language. Equivalently, you could do in the context of a regular expression, maybe just add uh, you know, another symbol or in another symbol or add a star somewhere. Essentially, make the regular expression longer but still only finitely long, but just add a symbol or two. How about in the context of DFAs? What could you do to take a given DFA and say, all right, this recognizes a certain regular language. I'm going to tweak it and recognize a different language. Well, what's the obvious approach there? Right, so add another state, add some more transitions, only finitely many. But if the goal is simply to create yet another regular language, that's certainly sufficient. So there are indeed infinitely many regular languages. But it turns out that there are certain sets that are much larger than, say, the set of regular languages, at least in some sense. In other words, if there are infinitely many regular languages, let's flip this question around. Are there any languages then that are not regular? OK, so there are indeed languages that aren't regular. And in fact, there's 
casually speaking, many more languages that are non-regular than are actually regular. So let's begin to formalize this and look ultimately today at a couple of examples that captures the spirit of what it means to be of a certain cardinality, a set or a language. So up here we essentially have a reiteration more formally of some of the ideas we've just discussed here. So it tosses out in that first bullet point that, well, every regular language can be described by a finite string, a regular expression, as we sort of uh, had the intuition there. If you can enumerate these regular expressions one by one by one, you can do that ad nauseum. And they just gradually get larger and larger and larger, sort of suggesting intuitively that there are infinitely many regular languages. Well. What about specifying an arbitrary language? In an arbitrary language, by this we mean something that doesn't really have an inherent pattern to the strings therein. A language that certainly can't be described nicely with a regular expression. A language that you, no matter how hard you try, cannot create a DFA or even an NFA for. Well, if we want to describe this, uh, an arbitrary language, at the end of the day, we might need to describe it with some arbitrary sequence of symbols. For instance, if we know we have some alphabet, um, we could, for instance, use an infinite sequence of bits to represent all of the strings in an infinite, uh, in an infinite language. In other words, we flip bit i if the ith string possible from that alphabet should indeed be in the language in question. But in a sense, we could create an arbitrary language, a set of random strings, in a sense, and then just represent that information just using an infinite sequence of zeros and ones, where again, each ith bit tells us, is that string in this arbitrary language or is it not? But what's the problem if we're representing ultimately an arbitrary language with this kind of approach, where we just keep a bit string that's as long as is, uh, uh, as is the set itself? representing what strings are in it. With regard to regularity, what's problematic about that approach? Yeah. Yeah, so regular expressions and DFAs can only be finite. And in particular, a DFA, if we consider this in machine terms, it only has a fixed number of states. It only has a finite amount of memory, of information that it can retain and detect. And so if you're essentially feeding, you're trying to feed a machine some arbitrary string that really fundamentally has no pattern to it whatsoever, well, you can't do that with a DFA alone. You need a more sophisticated machine, something with more memory, more computational power. Well, how do we formalize this idea that we simply cannot represent certain languages with regular expressions or NFAs or anything equivalent? Well, let's take a look at this notion of countability and slap some labels on the sizes of these sets. So what does it mean for a set to be finite? Without looking up, just in, uh, in informal terms. So you can count the elements and you eventually stop counting. So that, right, that's the catch for finiteness. So we're, let's introduce one other notion of countably infinite. So the set itself is infinite, but it is in fact countable. So here I'll take your definition, which is perfect, which is just you can count the elements. One, two, three. But unfortunately, that process never stops because it is infinite. But we say that such a set, if you keep on counting forever, is countably infinite. And to make this more formal, we say that we can essentially create a bijection between the natural counting numbers, 1 through whatever, or 0 through whatever, and essentially pair all of the numbers we typically use to count with every element in that set. So let's consider an example. So here, uh, Harry puts forth 
the set uh, z, which is the set of all integers. And obviously, there are positive and negative integers. Suppose that this is the set here. So, what would be a function, a bijection that we could create that maps uh, the natural numbers onto this set? In other words, if I wanted to number these things 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 on upward, I mean, what's the function that maps the index i to the actual element in the set? In other words, I want to answer this question. So each of those elements, 0, negative 1, 1, negative 2, and so forth, represents each element in the set, so s sub i. So what's the function? That takes as input the index in this set, enumerated as such, and yields what value is actually there. Because right? if we're going to claim formally that this set is in, uh, countably infinite, we need to give this bijection. It doesn't suffice to just say, obviously, this thing can be counted. Right? We need to formalize that. So what do we do? If I, uh, OK, so that seems to be recursively defined? OK, uh, let me push back and say we can do it much more simply. So again, the input to the problem is just the index location. So let's zero index things and use natural number 0 on upward. So 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. Yeah, David. OK. OK, good. So perhaps not completely obvious at first glance, but let's do a bit of a sanity check. And this is indeed a function. This doesn't violate the definition of a function, even though we're having these two cases here, but because it does exhaust all possible values from our domain, i. So let's see. So well, let's consider uh, this location. So this is index 0, 1, 2. So i equals 2. So if i equals 2, that's clearly even. 2 divided by 2 is 1. What's the value at that ith location? And it is indeed 1. All right, let's check one other. So what about the location next to it? So 0, 1, 2, 3. So I hopefully am going to spit out a negative 2 at the ith location equals 3. So that's odd. So we have 3 plus 1 is 4 divided by 2. So that's negative 2. And indeed, it checks out. So that is a casual justification that that is indeed correct. But at this point, it, it's reasonable to point out to the reader that this is indeed the bijection that gives the pairing between, or rather the function that gives a mapping from the natural numbers as expected to the elements of this set. Ergo, this set is countable. It's infinite, but it's countably infinite. Okay, any questions on that example thus far? So it's about to get more interesting because there we're about to see sets that we simply can't do this. And if we can't do this, we can't, no matter how hard we try, come up with a function like that, we're going to say that the set is uncountable, or aka uncountably infinite. All right, so what are some basic building blocks that we can first put forth that might be useful about infinite sets? Well, let's, let's try to grow the size of these sets and see if we can't trip, up, um, trip over some of these details. So if I take a countably infinite set, call it A, and another one, B, and I union them together. So sort of intuitively, the union of those two sets is bigger in a sense. But at the end of the day, that's sort of a meaningless statement because we're talking about infinity here. But can we take two countably infinite sets, A and B, union them together, and then claim that the result, formally speaking, is also countably infinite? So in other words, is C equals A union B also countably infinite? And if so, why? Well, how about intuitively? Countably infinite? 
If we take A union B, and each of those things is countably infinite, so intuitively, yeah, right? You can sort of interleave all of the elements, and the thing is still infinite, but at least it's very straightforward intuitively how you might merge these two sets together. But what about formally? What can we say? And unfortunately, the answer is sort of jumping out at you since it's right there behind me. <laughs> but someone pluck off this low hanging fruit and answer the question why is C countably infinite? All right, well, what, let's, I'll push back a little so that this actually is uh, perhaps enlightening. Why, so what does it take to argue that something's countably infinite based on what we've said thus far? Oh, I saw this. That seemed to me in the question's easy. Yeah? Good. If you can provide this mapping between the counting numbers and the elements of the set, bam, the thing is countably infinite. So how can we do that? Well, clearly, this is how we might do this. It's a little more interesting than the function we gave a moment ago for the simpler set. But absolutely, can we come up with a function that simply pairs the natural numbers with each element of the union? Essentially, the first index takes the element from the first set, and then the other set, and the other set, and the other set. So when I said we can sort of interleave the sets conceptually, we can also capture that idea of interleaving in the function itself. Now, there is one gotcha here. Okay, as Harry notes, if we're being fussy, the particularly astute student should argue that there's a bug in this, potentially. Ah. Yes, so it's a, it's a perfect point and exactly what Harry was looking for there. So there's this perhaps subtlety here where recall these basic definitions of these terms. A set is a uh, set of elements that is a collection of elements that does not contain duplicates. So that's a problem if you're sort of trusting in this ability to sort of interleave the elements one by one by one because C might very well, will not have multiple copies of some element, even if it happens to be in A and B. So for, suffice it to say for today's purposes that there are ways around this. You can either tweak the definition of the function and get more complicated about it, or you can take another tact altogether and simply argue that this thing is countably infinite from another angle altogether. But it's something to bear in mind. And it's subtle, perhaps, but it is important at least to recognize that there is that potential glitch. All right, so what about taking now. Again, let's continue this progression of making things larger uh, and slightly more complicated. What if we want to continue along these lines and not just union two countably infinite sets together, but instead an infinite number of countably infinite sets? So sort of union these things together ad nauseum. Does that create a problem? Does that finally push us beyond this limit of so-called countability? Well, what do you think intuitively? So there's, again, a, a leading, the answer is spoiled on the board here, albeit perhaps with an intriguing diagram. But what's, the, what's this getting at? So with just two sets, A and B, it's pretty easy conceptually to figure out how you might sort of rattle off the elements one by one. Top, bottom, top, bottom, top, bottom, top, bottom. Unfortunately, if you have an infinite number of sets, con consider that same idea. Well, if you have all these sets of strings and you just layer them, say, on a piece of paper, one row on top of another row on top of another row, problem is the piece of paper is infinitely long. So if you take this approach, you're just saying my enumeration is going to be the zeroth element from the first set, the zeroth element from the second set, the zeroth element from the next set, da 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 ad nauseum. What's the problem? 
Right, so you never end that actual process, right? Because you just keep going downward conceptually here in your list of, of sets, but you never actually get to any of the other elements by nature of the kind of walk that you're taking across all of those elements. So there's this really neat trick, and this will recur in this course and even outside this course. Especially among certain math problems and such, there's this approach that's generally called dovetailing, where if you need to somehow iterate over infinitely many sets, each of which itself might be infinitely long, you can do this clever trick whereby rather than just go top to bottom in the manner I sort of described, you algorithmically weave throughout each of the sets. So, what Harry has up here is a depiction of precisely this. So, from top to bottom, We have the following. Each row here represents a set. So, set called 0, set called 1, set called 2, and so forth. The names are meaningless, but we can at least enumerate them one by one because we, we argue that we're talking about countably many,、uh, countably infinitely many, countably infinite sets. So, what's across the x axis here? Well, each of the columns represents a bit, 0 or 1, is that element, in, or rather, Each of the columns there represents an actual element. So essentially, what I've done is write in set notation each of the elements left to right, and then each of the sets I've written row by row. So if I want to come up with an enumeration, that is a, a walk throughout all of the elements of all of these sets, rather than take this top down approach, which again would never stop, you can do this dovetailing approach, which literally looks like this sort of、um, these diagonals going back and forth, where you start in the top left conceptually, you touch, go one row down, start going diagonally, and you just weave. And so conceptually, because this table is really growing downward and outward, Because of the way you've defined this walk across all of the elements, this enumeration to be more formal, you're eventually going to touch all of the elements. It's going to take forever, but there is no element, arguably, that you're ever going to miss because eventually you will get there. So the question then is is there actually a function that describes that kind of walk across all of these elements? Right? The previous example was quite easy.、Right? You just take this element, then this element, then this element, then this element, but this walk alone seems much more sophisticated. Well, have we reached a dead end here? Or can we express formally what this function, this bijection, would be? In other words, how can we create an enumeration such that that top left element is 0, then the one below it is 1, then 2, then 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9? Can we do it? So, this is non obvious, but for those of you with a curiosity who want to take a look at, say, Wikipedia sometime at Cantor's pairing function, Cantor, C A N T O R,、uh, the gentleman who put forth a formula that's actually not all that complicated, it's just not necessarily obvious. And those of you with laptops might be pulling this up now, involves some squares and a bit of mathematics, but nothing terribly complicated, just not something you might. Notice at first glance. So, this approach of dovetailing back and forth might very well be the answer in the future to how you might somehow engage with all of the elements in infinitely many, infinitely large sets. So, the takeaway for now is that yes, indeed, there is a bijection, an answer to that question. And I'll defer, say, to any online resource if you're curious as to what that is. But it's really the concept that for now that's important. So here we are with the kicker. So we've talked about now a count,、uh, finite sets, countably infinite sets, the union of two countably infinite sets, and just now the union of countably many countably infinite sets. 
So have we reached finally a problem? Are there uncountable sets? Well, yes, there are. And perhaps the canonical one that's often put forth is that if you take the power set of some set, odds are what you're looking at is an uncountable set. That is a set that no matter how hard you try, you simply cannot come up with a bijection. You cannot come up with a conceptual explanation of how you would enumerate all of the elements in the set. Because you will, by nature of uncountable sets, leave at least one of those elements out. It's just not possible to touch verbally or formally all of the elements. Well, Suppose that we want to argue this for the case of the natural number. So the natural numbers are the counting numbers. P of n represents then the power set of the natural numbers. And just a quick sanity check, what's the power set of, say, the natural numbers? What does that mean? Set of all possible subsets. So that itself is infinitely large, certainly for the, countable, uh, for the natural numbers. All right, so let's assume that P of n is countable. And let's see where this leads us. So suppose it is countable. Then there's going to be an enumeration of all the sets uh, as follows. So S0 is the first such set. S1 is the second such set. Does this lead to a problem? Well, it does. Consider how we might see this. So again, another sort of tabular view of some data, this time with different elements. But let me frame exactly what we're looking at here. So in order to derive a contradiction, because the goal I'm trying, we're trying to have now is to say the power set of the natural numbers is not Countable. We cannot do this clever dovetailing approach, no matter how much we might want to. Well, let's represent the problem in question as follows with this table. Each of the rows, again, represents a set. But this time, the columns there, j equals 0, 1, 2, simply represents a possible element in a given set. So maybe it's a, the string a, a, a. A, or rather, we're talking about the natural numbers. Maybe it's 1, uh, 1, comma two, uh, 2, or 3, or 4. Those are the possible elements. So we have a y anywhere that indicates that for that given set, say s sub 0, the element 0 is in that set. So that's the top left-hand corner there. Next column over, what we have is an n, which means that the element 1 is not in the set called s sub 0. And let's fast forward down here. What this then means is that the number 0 is not in the set s sub 3. So again, here's a way where conceptually, and we have to stop with the dot, dot, dots if we actually want to stop drawing the picture of representing membership in all of these sets. So that's the basic idea. So the question, quite simply, is if we proceed in that manner, even though we'll never actually stop, but if we follow that approach, will we enumerate all possible sets in P of n? So clearly not, right? Because the end game here was to argue that there are indeed uncountable sets. But why? Any intuition? That's some dead air. All right, so what's the formalization? And in fact, though this technique might be new to you, it too is quite powerful and will also recur later in the course. So if we want to argue that, in fact, this table, as sort of clever and even as straightforward as it seems, does not, in fact, contain all possible sets, well, we can derive a contradiction. Suppose we do the following. You hand me this table, and you make the claim, David, here is a table that gives you all the definition of all possible subsets of the natural numbers. Here they are. I've enumerated them. And I say, no, there's actually one that you've left out. 
how do I know which one that is? Well, I can construct it, essentially. You give me this table claiming that you've enumerated all possible subsets. I say, that's not possible. Here's one you missed. The one you missed is the set, call it S sub David, that has, <laughs> that has, that does not have the zeroth element that does have the element 1, that does have the element 2, that does not have the element 3, dot, dot, dot. In other words, I take your table and I look at your diagonal. And what I essentially say for each element in that diagonal, the opposite of what your table says. What I then hand you, even though it's infinitely long, because we are talking about countably infinite sets, what I hand you as the counterexample is exactly what's in this diagonal but with all of those y's and n's flipped. Why have I therefore constructed a set, a possible subset of p of n, that you fail to include in your list? What's the intuition there? Because to check whether the set has, you just compare the indices. If you flipped at the third index, then the item that contains the third one definitely is going to be the one that you have. Perfect. Perfect. So if we continue this sort of cat and mouse game where you claim here's all the possible enumerations, I say, mm -mm, no, here's one that's not. You might then say, wait a minute. Yes, it is in my table. You're going to look for it. Look for that sequence of y's and n's. But unfortunately, because of my construction, my set differs in at least one location from any possible row that you might hand back by definition of my construction. So. This is perhaps something that tends to blow one's mind because it seems very reasonable to just enumerate all these possible things. And granted, we stop writing them and just do dot, dot, dot here. But conceptually, it makes sense that you could just enumerate all possible ones. But the catch is that we're talking about infinity in this direction and infinity in this direction. And so by this fairly simple construction, can I indeed come up with a counterexample to your claim that your table is in fact exhaustive? It is in fact not because I can come up with this counterexample. So this is a technique generally known as diagonalization. And it, too, will actually recur later in the course when you start looking at computable problems and Turing machines and uncomputable problems as well. But any questions? Because this technique is important to be comfortable with. And here Harry has, with these bullets, really a formalization of the story we told. Yeah. Exactly. Because my construction itself is infinite by design, I, no matter how deep in the table you look, I will eventually have flipped one of your y's to n or n's to y's. So it, as such, my diagonal will differ by construction from any of the rows you might throw at me. It's a weird concept. So this kind of reaction is appropriate. But it's kind of neat at the same time. But other questions? All right, let's do another example. So how many integers are there in the world? The set generally known as z. How many integers? OK, so infinitely many, but specifically, henceforth, countably infinitely many. Well, what about the real numbers? Real numbers are the things with fractions that can also go on forever, right? with no apparent pattern to the, decimal, to the digits after the decimal point. How many of those are there? OK, all right, so leading question. Uncountably many, but why is that? So here's the pro here's, let's play this cat and mouse game again. So I claim, you know what, the real numbers, the set R is countable. 
Because you know what? I'm going to take the time to actually write down all of the real numbers for you. So here we go. So I'm going to say that the zeroth one in my little table that I'm about to construct, and just arbitrarily I'm going to do this randomly because I don't really care about the order. I'll just eventually get to all of them for you. So 1, 1, 3, 2, 6, 7, 8, 9, 7, and then dot, dot, dot. I'll finish writing that later. Then 0 0.234570, 0, and I'll finish that one. 2, let's do a couple more, 3, 4, 7, 8, 9, and so forth. And let's just assume that this pattern repeats. OK, so it's going to take me a while to get back to you, but I'm going to claim that that table is an enumeration of all the possible real numbers. Ergo, r is countably infinite. What's your response? Let me look for a new hand. I'll take a uh, Yes? Good. Mod 10. Yep. Okay, perfect. So let's apply the same diagonalization technique. Essentially, you, as the adversary in this story, are going to take the diagonal, which, because of my not to scale drawing here, isn't quite going to look like a diagonal. But the spirit is what we're getting at. And as you propose, what's your name? Um, Rajika. Rajika. Damn, I shouldn't have asked for the name. <laughs> My apologies. So here's the diagonal. And as you propose, let's just increment 1 mod 10 so that we stay within the decimal digits. So let's say this could become 1, this could become 3, this could become 5, and so forth. And so my algorithm, I can't just say, I don't want to just say change it randomly, though we even could. But I'm just going to say algorithmically, as you propose, increment by 1 mod 10. Now, what's the, what's the problem then for me? Well, you have just come up with a counterexample to my claim that I have enumerated all possible real numbers for you. Because just as with this previous example, even though we're now talking about decimal digits and not y's and n's, you have clearly constructed a real number that cannot possibly be in my table. Because no matter how hard I might look, I might find a nearly perfect match, but it's going to differ in at least one place, that place along the diagonal that you flipped the digit. Yeah? Um, actually, the first question I would ask before presenting the diagonalization argument is how exactly you are going to like, squeeze in numbers greater than or equal to 10 in your data. So that, too, is, is a fair question, which makes this problem even more obviously uncountable than, say, this one, which gets enumerated much more easily. So and that's why I waved my hand at even the order in which I was writing these. Right? I can punt on that and just say, I'm going to do it in random order, but I'll get to all of them eventually. Yes, so there is this subtlety, this bug in this type of example, which I forget if Sipser talks about this, but essentially, as you might have learned in, say, high school or middle school, if you have numbers like 0.1, well, this is really equivalent to that. So for now, we'll, we'll wave our hand at that particular detail. But it is important when you talk about this example in this domain. The implication just being that there are uh, equivalent numbers there in the table, but again, that's more of a, um, an artifact of the problems domain. So let me wave my hand at that for now and focus mostly on diagonalization here. Other questions about the technique and really the, what the point of this claim was, which again was to argue that there are, in fact, 
uncountably, sets that are uncountably infinite. All right, so now let's pull this conversation back to languages, because that's where you're going to dwell for most of the semester, not just on sets in general, but on languages, and ultimately in computing problems in the context of languages. So an alphabet, as you know, is finite. We said as much before. It's a set of symbols, but it's finitely long. It might be 0, 1. It might be the empty set. It might be a, comma b, or most anything else. All right, so what about sigma star? Well, sigma star is countably infinite. Well, how can we see that? Just intuitively, why would you say that sigma star is countably infinite? Well, again, go back to the basic fundamentals. What does it mean to be countably infinite? All right, so there's a, some bijection with the natural numbers. Or casually, you can enumerate all possible strings. Well, just intuitively, which is all we were getting at here, is if we want to talk about the sigma star and the size thereof, well, let's just consider, just for intuition's sake, a simple example. Suppose sigma is just the symbol a. Well, how can we pair sigma star with the natural numbers? Well, you can sort of just treat these things as unary um, digits. So we can simply say, for instance, that the pairing is going to, or the enumeration of all these things is going to be the empty string, followed by a, followed by a, a, followed by a, 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 dot, dot, dot. And by nice coincidence, in this case, this effectively is like saying 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. But even if we had multiple symbols, suppose instead we consider sigma equals a, comma, b. Well, sigma star in this case. You know, it is bigger in a sense, but that's even an abuse of the term mathematically here. But what, well, how would we enumerate these? Well, again, sigma. And we need some algorithm. We can't just start enumerating these things randomly, because we do ultimately need to give a function. But what's the first string going to be, arguably? After a, so epsilon followed by you know, maybe a, followed by b, followed by a, 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 b, uh, b, a, b, b. A, A, A. In other words, just start counting in binary this time. And that could be your mapping function. And I won't bother putting up the function notation. But so long as you can come up with, for your set, some kind of mapping with the natural numbers here intuitively given and in previous examples more formally defined, then sure, that set, sigma star in this case, is countably infinite. Well, what about, oh, so the takeaway then is that every language, according to these arguments, is either finite or it's countably infinite. So when it comes to languages, languages themselves are not uncountably infinite. Because they're either finite, we can write down all the possible strings, or they're countably infinite for at least this intuitive reason that we can just enumerate all of the strings from, say, shortest to longest. Lexicographic order is a nice trick for making sure you enumerate all possible strings. Because there's only the finitely many strings of, say, length 2 when you have a finitely sized alphabet. So you'll eventually enumerate all of them. But what about the power set? In other words, the set of subsets of a countable infinite set. Well, we already know that the power set of some set is uncountably infinite. So if that set happens to be sigma star, the power set of sigma star is also uncountably infinite. Ergo, there are uncountably many languages over any alphabet. Right? And this is where we sort of set ourselves up to end up at the start of lecture. We asked ourselves, all right, how many regular languages are there? Well infinitely many, but countably infinitely many. It turns out, though, there are uncountably many languages because we can only enumerate, as you said in, say, the first five minutes of today, only so many regular languages by way of, say, their DFAs or by way 
of their regular expressions. So, again, sort of conceptually, the set of non regular languages is much bigger than the set of regular languages. And if that sort of conclusion isn't quite clear, try at least, say, after class today, just walking through some of the examples from lecture to see where we started. This asking how many regular languages are there and why, in fact, it is the case that we can conclude quite safely that there's uncountably many languages in the aggregate, of which the regular languages are merely a subset. And many of the remaining weeks of this class will be focused not on this fairly small bubble of regular languages, but at some of the more interesting, the more uh, difficult to compute languages that are much larger, in a sense. There's a question here about what about if sigma has just one element? which I'll leave as a thought question for you, but see if that, in fact, gives you any kind of hiccup. All right, so about these non-regular languages. So here's the theorem. For every alphabet sigma, there exists a non-regular language over sigma. All right, well, what's the proof, at least, or what are some possible proofs for this argument here? All right, so there's only countably many regular expressions over sigma. And that much we sort of started today with, saying that you can take a, a regular expression is finitely long, and you can simply grow it one symbol at a time to come up with yet another regular expression or another language. But as such, there are only countably many of those things. And let's actually make this more clear. So this point here, that there are only countably many regular expressions over sigma, why is that the case? I mean, argue in a sentence that there are countably many regular expressions. What does it take to argue that? Okay, so there's one expression for each of the regular languages. You have to be careful there, because I could come up with multiple regular expressions for the same language, even just by oring in the empty set, empty set, empty set, different regular expression. OK, so the regular expressions themselves come from an alphabet, right? So the alphabet containing sigma itself, a's and b's usually, and then also things like open parenthesis and close parenthesis and star. Well, if regular expressions themselves are just strings, well, those strings are drawn from a language. In fact, you can define with the grammar exactly what regular expressions are. Well, regular expressions are by definition finite. They're drawn from an alphabet that's finitely large. You know, open parenthesis, close parenthesis, and so forth. So what can you do can intuitively with, say, all possible regular expressions to make this claim that there are countably infinitely many? Well, you can start with the smallest one, which is just, say, the empty set. And you can say, here's the zeroth regular expression. Then you can give me a regular expression that's of length 2, and then a bunch of others. Then a regular expression that's of length 3, and all of those. And then the regular expressions that are of length 4, and so forth. You can enumerate regular expressions in so-called lexicographic order. Right? Even though they're not English words, you can certainly sort them according to their length and according to the characters therein. And so as such, by those arguments, our regular expressions, the set thereof, also countably infinite. But the implication, that is another way to sort of answer this question about the size of the set of regular languages, is that if there's countably infinitely many regular expressions, how many regular languages are there? Countably many, countably infinitely many, for that reason. Well, what's another angle on this same question? Well, um, or rather toward this, the end of arguing that there are, in fact, non-regular languages. So we already know that there's uncountably many languages over sigma. Why was that? Yeah? 
So the total, po all possible languages is really just power sets of sigma star, right? So we already said that that set is uncountable. But if we've just said that given sigma star, there's uncountably many possible languages. There's uncountably many possible subsets of sigma star. But there's only countably many regular languages. The obvious conclusion there is that the regular languages are just a subset of all possible languages. So as such, there have to be non-regular languages, or at least one, right? because the sets are, are um, disjoint. So it turns out, and this is where Harry in quotes sort of says, there are um, almost all languages are non-regular. Even though you've spent the past two or so weeks dwelling on regular languages and DFAs and NFAs, turns out that you've just scratched the surface of all possible languages. And where this course gets particularly exciting, I think, is when you start to grow the domain of languages that you speak in terms of and start looking not just at simple languages of A's and B's and zeros and ones, but rather languages whose strings represent interesting problems, problems that today's computers either can or even cannot solve. And that's ultimately some of the questions that this course ends up on. So I'll leave as thought questions as well from Harry. Can you make one of these similar, can you do the same proof using the arguments along the lines of DFAs? That is, can you tell a similar story, not talking about regular expressions, but instead talking about DFAs? And can you come up with an explicit non-regular language. And you might have seen a sneak preview of this before, but there's a canonical reg non-regular language that you'll become quite friendly with. Yeah, so this language, often just described as a to the n, b to the n, as simple as that language looks, turns out you cannot, in fact, represent it with a regular expression or DFA or an NFA because it, is, in fact, lives in this much larger space of non-regular languages. So this was a shorter lecture. So I'll bid you adieu, and I'll stick around if you have any questions. But otherwise, you're free.